Worldview and a Christian Philosophy of History, Part 2. Speaking out of his underlying worldview, the neo-pagan Goethe, who was decidedly hostile to Christian doctrine, said that history is the most absurd of all things, a web of nonsense for the higher thinker. And if it were the case that no creator God stands behind history, governing all things in terms of his sovereign purpose and providence, then indeed from a purely imminent human standpoint, man looks at history and is confronted by what appears absurd. Pushed to consistency with his apostate worldview, in an unbelieving philosophy of history, man is fatally immersed in historical time. The non-intelligibility of past and present, including all cultures and individuals, surrounds him. In short, there is no fixed bank outside the boat of historical flux, no place to stand beyond constant change that can serve as a transcendent referent. Since in the revolutionary secular mind everything in human life is subject to this constant change, even moral standards, law and judicial principles are reduced to the historical in a state of constant flux. But here we have a problem. If everything simply is history, which is a convenient word to talk about stuff that happened, then there is nothing left in the world that can have a history. Because history, law, morality, science, art, indeed all human thought become identical. That is to say, if art is only history, how can we have a history of art? We cannot equate all of reality with just one of its aspects. That is a category mistake known in this case as historicism. Clearly, we do not regard everything that happens as historical. Who would argue that simply drinking a beer is an essentially historical event? However, if we were to imagine Oliver Cromwell, say, in a London pub, stumbling into Charles I, and a conversation ensuing that ended hostilities between Parliament and the Crown in the 17th century, we would consider that particular beer historic. In other words, typically historical events are those that act formatively in world history. Events become significant only in connection with their impact on human culture. A historian, therefore, needs a criterion for distinguishing the historical aspect of reality from all the other aspects, such as the physical, biological, aesthetic, or logical. The problem with historicism is that without the doctrine of creation, it lacks a valid criterion because the historical aspect of our experience and all reality become one and the same. If all phenomena are nothing but history, we can only have an absolute relativism valid distinctions and any value judgments become impossible. The historicism of the modern secular world negates history because it fails to see that constancy and change are inseparable. Change can only be detected in human experience 
on the basis that something beyond change is constant. To deny an element in life that is constant, such as moral law, is actually to deny change and all history. There must be a criterion that cannot be reduced to historical change for a philosophy of history to be possible. Of course, it is impossible for apostate men to live with the absurdity to which this idolatry of absolutizing historical change drives them. Radical relativism is self-defeating. As a result, in the West, philosophers have often sought to escape the problem of total immersion in historical time by borrowing elements from a Christian understanding and philosophy of history. History must be salvaged from its absurdity to move in a purposeful direction toward a particular chosen end. The purpose and will of man must be imposed upon the constant change all around them. Whilst historical actions and reactions are accounted for solely in terms of various material, social and economic forces. Nature may be deterministic, but somehow man must be made to transcend the flux of fate to have a history. Religious belief in an absolute human freedom thus struggles against the opposite pole in the religious worldview of the modern age, that is the determinism of nature powerfully set forth in the doctrine of evolution. The very concept of history as we know it really owes its origin to a biblical view of the world. The endless cycles of recurrence for the Greeks and the nihilism of Eastern philosophy could not have given us the idea of historical progress and direction that still shapes the mind of the modern West. The current cultural concern with a universal history with progress towards a better or more equal or more healthy or more just world is clearly borrowed from our Christian past, from the prophetic messianic vision of scripture. What shapes our cultural vision today in the West is a philosophy of history that tries to secularize biblical ideas. The contemporary view of history then is a bastardization, a hybrid attempt to synthesize a pagan and Christian view by immanentizing creation, incarnation and consummation. That is, these must now happen from within history rather than being from beyond history in the person of Christ. Man must somehow transcend himself, recreate himself, incarnate his idea and messianic vision and bring his prophecy to consummation by his own power. To better understand how the non-Christian thinking of the modern West is so dependent on a scripturally derived philosophy of history, we need to understand something of what scripture teaches about history. From the beginning of Genesis and the cultural mandate given to human beings to rule and subdue by bringing out the potentialities of the earth, cultivating creation in terms of the kingdom purposes of God, 
we find that the essence of the historical aspect of human experience is free, formative control. That is, the way we experience the historical, cultural aspect of human life is the constant struggle for the control of historical development. We are all part of that struggle every day. The way in which unbelief has distorted the original biblical calling to formative control within cultural history is critical to understanding the purpose of a Christian philosophy of history, as well as a redemptive and prophetic calling for philosophy. The scriptural perspective concerns a direction for history grounded in Christ as the root of all things. It is Christ, the living word, who created, sustains, and governs all things. Paul says in Romans 11:36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Creation is therefore a concrete manifestation of his word. The biblical worldview tells us of this good creation that fell into ruin due to sin, subsequently being subject to God's curse and thus placed in a temporary bondage to decay. However, according to the messianic covenant promise of God from beyond history, the last Adam, the true man and truly obedient son, is incarnate in the world, invading in the flesh the history that he governs. Christ Jesus then is made manifest at the right time for our redemption and the reconciliation of all things to God. His power and authority to restore all things to the Father, renewing all that had been distorted by sin, was unveiled through the power of his word, a word which not only pronounced forgiveness of sins, but worked the healing of disease, the calming of waves and storm, the creation of new wine, and the raising of the dead. These signs pointed to the eschatological character of history, which culminates in the renewal of heaven and earth. By his vicarious death, his resurrection, his ascension and indeed session at the right hand of God the Father, now in the place of total authority, the court of Christ's judgment is in session, for he must reign until he places all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15. Now his rule and reign is declared by his redeemed people in the gospel of the kingdom. And now as new creatures, we pray and work for that kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. At a time that is only known to God the Father, the last Adam, the Lord of all creation, shall return to consummate his kingdom purposes and release creation from its bondage to corruption, a liberation that will coincide with the resurrection of the body. The renewed earth will be as real as this one, as the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven into the earth and God makes his dwelling with men. Now, this understanding of history that we find in scripture has 
massive ramifications for a scriptural approach to every aspect of life in the struggle for control of the direction of cultural development. This scriptural historical explanation forms the foundation of a Christian philosophy of history. Creation is broken and sin and injustice continue to do their worst. Man feels alienated from God, man, the creation, and his proper calling because of sin. But in Christ, he is restored to his calling where the reality of regeneration and the assurance of final total restoration urge him on to cultural action in terms of the kingdom of God. It is easy to see now how secularized copies of the Christian vision of history, which ape the biblical view, have gained such cultural force. In humanistic philosophy built on a worldview of unbelief, the focal point of all being is man and not God. An apostate doctrine of man with man as the center of all things is closely linked to a philosophy of history that dominates in the modern West. This philosophy of history no longer sees man under an absolute control of unchanging reason and natural morality as earlier forms of rationalism had done. Instead, there is at work a new law idea in which human beings in the progress of history are becoming increasingly self-conscious of their freedom. For influential Western philosophers like Hegel and other thinkers of the tradition of German idealism, it was the divine or absolute spirit that was becoming self-conscious through incarnating itself in man in the process of history. In that sense, God potentially existed as man became self-conscious of his freedom. For many modern thinkers, what was important was man's self-realization, his ability to free himself from his self-alienation, primarily by ridding himself of the idea of God and Christian theology, which supposedly prevented man from realizing his true freedom. On this view, nature is seen as enslaving man, so he must master it, control it, finding self-liberation and bringing nature to realize its true purpose. It's easy to see here a radical distortion of the Christian idea of dominion under God and a false redemption from alienation, not due to sin, but due to the illusion of God and Christian revelation. Christian concepts are thus borrowed and invested with a radically new humanistic secular meaning, whilst Christianity itself is jettisoned. In this line, the most consistent and culturally influential example of philosophy of history that seeks to rob Christian resources whilst assaulting Christianity is Marxism, a vision that is very much with us today in a variety of guises and modifications. Karl Marx was enthralled in his early career by German idealism, but it was not concrete or radical enough for him. Marx wanted revolutionary social change. For him, this was the proper goal 
of true philosophy, which he said, and I quote, does not simply interpret as all philosophies have done up till now. On the contrary, philosophy changes the state of affairs. Philosophy emancipates. That is, it was not enough to simply rebel against Christian teachings, because to Marx, Christian thought was a result of Christian social reality and order. To destroy the former, one had to alter the latter. Human socio-economic order was the real reason man hadn't truly become self-conscious or realized his freedom. That is, because of allegedly unjust social structures like the family and capitalist forms of production. Marx thus sought to absorb all history into an economic process which he taught was moving toward a final world revolution and renovation. He believed that he was realizing the unity of reason and reality, of essence and existence. The rational was the real and had to be concretized in history. The philosophy which could meet the need of the hour had to be worldly, political and economic, a new kingdom of God. As such, for Marx, history is a struggle, but not a struggle between the city of God and the earthly city seen in scripture, between the kingdoms of darkness and light, but between the oppressors and the oppressed. The oppressor is epitomized by the Christian order. Christianity to Marx was the religion peculiar to capitalism. Deliverance only comes through a new chosen people, the oppressed, whose exodus he expounds in the Communist Manifesto. Signs of the last judgment of history are manifest when members of the oppressor class join the revolutionary class to get on the right side of history. Together, these are the progressive class with a universal historical mission to destroy all previous order and securities, including family, church, and private property. As man alters reality with his worldly, political, and economic philosophy of history, the Marxist and progressivist vision is that finally, a realm of freedom will emerge, a kingdom of God in the earth without God. Those who oppose the revolution may use various ideological machinations to disguise and hide their desire for power, control, and a monopoly on material production. Therefore, Christianity and other worldviews have a secret history, not seen in their conscious theological or ideological reflections. In other words, people cannot be taken to mean what they say they mean by their worldview. Everyone representing a scriptural Christian perspective is actually blind or dishonest. All are deceivers, except the Marxists, of course, armed with their radical philosophy of history. The task of the new prophetic philosopher is to call man to recreate himself through his work and cease to alienate himself in traditional Marxism by being a wage laborer. Redemption comes with the abolition of private property and man's appropriating and possessing himself. Labor 
in the new reality is for the universal socio-economic community. Social man is born again, free from the sin of exploitation into welfare liberty. The culmination of this dream is a utopian society created by faith in the self-liberating power of mankind. This all makes the Marxist and neo-Marxist vision of history a profoundly religious enterprise. Without adequate ground, Marx and his contemporary disciples see exploitation and oppression under every rock, even though they lack an objective criterion for such an ethical judgment in their atheistic worldview. But this does not dampen their righteous indignation. As historian Karl Loeth has noted, and I quote, the Communist Manifesto is first of all a prophetic document, a judgment and a call to action. The idea that a struggle between oppressors and oppressed is that which determines the totality of history is an uncritical dogmatism, a secular prophecy that parades itself as a science. In Marx's own words, and I quote, we reclaim the whole content of history, but we do not see in it a revelation of God, but only of man. So whilst assailing the supposedly mythological Christianity, Marx borrows its categories of thought. His is an eschatological faith that apes the Christian philosophy of history in order to give it formative cultural power. And so Marx's criticism of thinkers like Hegel was that although he asserted the autonomy of man's reason, he failed to apply it and realize it in history. True philosophy, he thought, must emancipate and deliver man from all his idols. This spirit of the age, characterized by constant change and a lack of any abiding standard, sheds light on our cultural moment where every basic assumption about creation order in the West is being challenged from human identity as male and female to the nature of marriage, family and sexuality. Although the focus of Marx's philosophy of history was economic materialism, he well understood that you cannot have social revolution without a sexual revolution. Since he thought of social conditions determining people's thinking, his concern was to change those conditions. And the Christian concept of family was for him at the root of oppression, exploitation, and the evil of private property. Above all, it was at the root of the religious opiate of the people, the myth of God. Marx actually wrote, and I quote, once the earthly family is discovered to be the secret of the holy family, the former must then itself be theoretically criticized and radically changed in practice. Marx therefore lays the groundwork for the sexual revolution that continues all around us and obviously is the primary author of the welfareism and socialism that goes by the name of social justice. The contemporary mantra following Marx 
continues to divide the world into oppressors and oppressed. And the newly expanded categories of people said to be victims of oppression are not simply the wage laborers, but all those victimized by the Christian morality and social order of the past, like marriage, monogamy, one man with one woman, and so on. In addition, since the origins of Christendom are conceived of as European and white, every other people group, religion and color, are likewise victims of the oppressive white Christian man and his middle-class family. All history, especially Western imperial history, must now be interpreted through this illusory grid and immediate revolutionary action taken to implement the social changes necessary to either convert or oppress the oppressor, casting them into the imminent hell first of social and cultural ostracism, and then if necessary of criminal sanction. For neo-Marxism, justice being social, guilt must be also. So the individual character and behavior of the oppressors is irrelevant. Following Marx, they belong to a condemned class that has a secret history and intention not revealed by their actual words and convictions. As such, the popular slogans about freedom, democracy, rights, inclusion and tolerance have no reliable or lasting value. These mantras are merely empty shouts to overturn all existing order in the hope that from such a demolition of previous security, a radical and autonomous freedom will emerge where man is no longer troubled by conflict or a deep sense of alienation. When we return for part three, we will explore the Christian prophetic response to all of this.